Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. This is the story of Christ and the woman at the well. And within this story, I'm just going to read a few verses of it and then fill the rest of the story in for you comes this great question for all ages, the question of worship. So I read, Sir, the woman says, I can see you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, the time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming, and now has come, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. Permit me just to read that last phrase again. They are the kind of worshiper the Father seeks. Doesn't that say a lot to you? He wants worshipers. He's not an egomaniac. But he seeks proper worshipers. And I hope that we glean enough from what I have to share today that we can ask ourselves that hard-hitting question. Am I the kind of worshiper God is seeking? We often think of worship in terms of us seeking after God, but there's a reciprocal here. It's God seeking after worshipers as well. I want to be one of the kinds that he wants my presence when it's time to be a worshiper. Instead of rejecting me, I don't like that kind of worship. I want to be the kind he seeks after. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. This is an era that is unlike anything we have known, I would say, in the past century. Now, it may go centuries beyond that, but I didn't live then to speak authoritatively about that. But during my lifetime, we're living in a very unique age in the church where what we call worship, like the worship that we just got through doing, has been defined very narrowly. And we probably have had more teaching and preaching on the subject of worship in the past 20 or 25 years than perhaps ever in the history of the church. There are some churches that are building their church upon and around their worship. I believe the church needs to be built upon Jesus Christ and the proclamation of him. That can be done through the worship service. It should be, always be done through the worship service, should be done through the preaching of the word in lifting up Jesus Christ. But with all of this teaching that we have on worship, you've probably heard it approached 
in almost every way conceivable that we can approach it. So I hope I can do something a little bit fresher today so you don't say, oh, another one of those teachings on worship again. Because I kind of get tired of those myself. But we find in this story what leads up to this passage of Scripture is that Jesus is weary from having already traveled a considerable distance. It's now noontime. The sun is beating down. And he is tired. He stops and rests by the well. His disciples go on farther than he did. They go to get some food. And while Jesus is stopped and resting at the well, a woman comes to draw water from the well. Here we have a clash of culture in, in two respects. Number one, we have a Samaritan woman, and a Jew. And that's a clash in itself because they didn't get along. Whenever the kingdom divided many centuries previous, and Samaria became the area of the northern parts, and they tried to create their own worship of Jehovah and eventually became uh, serious idolaters. Ever since that division of the kingdom, the Jews and the Samaritans didn't think a whole lot of each other. So they didn't get along. Culture clash right here at the well. Then you have the other culture clash, which is just in that day and age, it wasn't appropriate not only for a Jew to be talking to a Samaritan, but for a man to be talking and carrying on casual conversation with a woman like this. Women were highly oppressed in that culture. Jesus is breaking two rules, two taboos, and he's talking to this woman. She draws water. He purposely has not drawn water for himself yet. It's fascinating to watch how Jesus acts, behaves himself, conducts himself in this process of witnessing, ministering to somebody. We can learn a lot from this story in how to engage people. So he could have gone and got him some water, but in his wisdom, in his knowledge and spiritual understanding, word of knowledge, he realizes I don't have to get my own drink because there's going to be a woman coming along, and and this is one of the ways I'm going to engage her in conversation that ultimately is going to speak into her life. So this is all a masterful way of one-on-one evangelism. Sure enough, the woman comes along. He has not drunk any water yet. She draws some water from the well, and Jesus enters her life by saying, give me a drink of that water that you just drew. Once again, he's severely crossing cultural boundaries that would have been shocking to anybody else there, and certainly, by reading the story, you can see it's shocking to the Samaritan woman. She doesn't hardly know what to make of this. You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. You're a man. I'm a woman. Nothing about this looks right or feels right. And Jesus said, give me some water to drink. They go through this whole uh, discussion of, of uh, you shouldn't be asking, why do you ask water of me? And Jesus turning it around and now turning it into something spiritual. And that's the masterful way in which he is witnessing to this woman. Well, now, if you'd have asked me of water, I would have given you some water so you'd never thirst again. That's a, a real catcher, isn't it? That'll get your attention. And so she's now intrigued, what is this man talking about? He's, he's the master. He's in control of this whole conversation. And they, they talk about water, and he in, 
insinuates spiritual water and spiritual thirst, and she's becoming all the more intrigued. Uh, And she says, well, you know, I would like some of that water. And Jesus says, then go get your husband, and we'll, we'll take care of this. And she says, I don't have a husband, and he famously, as you know, says, uh, you've spoken correctly. You've had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. Now, when we get to that point, the immediate thing we do with this story is we assume that this woman is some sort of a scoundrel. And I have done that most of my life as well. That's just the first thing that comes to our mind. Wow, a woman with five exes and a live-in. And we just kind of pigeonhole her. But in, in all honesty, and this is one of these things we want to, to consider, that we make assumptions many times when we read the Bible. We read it through 21st century eyes and, and understanding. And we make assumptions that really are not there. The Bible does not indicate that this woman really was a sinner or an adulteress because of the circumstance she was in. Can, can we even imagine any other circumstance for this woman? Absolutely, we can. She could have had five faulty husbands and they all died. That's possible. You know that? It really is. She could have had five husbands that put her off and divorced her. And Jesus had spoken about the issue of divorce. He said, uh, Moses wrote you a bill of divorcement because of the hardness of your hearts, because women were being terribly mistreated. And so she could have had five men that just dismissed her. That was not her fault. Furthermore, Jesus never dealt with the issue of gross sin in her life in this whole conversation. He was just introducing her to the proper form of worship. That's what it really comes down to before the end. So it would, have been, it would have been interesting that under the Judaic law, the Judaic legal system, that any woman who was an adulterer and being divorced under the wrong circumstances for the wrong reasons would have made somebody a, a, an adulterer. And what did they do to adulterers? They killed them. This woman is still living and breathing. There's a lot of pointers, there's a lot of indicators here that maybe she's not the scoundrel we have always made her out to be because she's getting away with a lot of stuff that they would not be able to get away with in that culture. Nevertheless, what he did do is he just told her, I know a lot more about you than I th- you think I know about you. That's what impressed her. And she now is very intrigued by this man, and by the time he reveals his knowledge of her life, and by the way, God knows a lot more about you than you want to admit most of the time. Anybody, have you ever done anything in your life that was wrong that you were trying to hide when you were doing it and somehow you felt justified in hiding from God when you were doing it? Of course, we can't hide from God. He sees everything. Because if we had this realization that no matter what we're doing, if it's wrong, that God was right there in the same room with us watching us, we wouldn't do it. So we compartmentalize these things. We somehow convince ourselves, God doesn't see me. He's busy now. God knows. So God reveals, Jesus reveals to this woman, I I know you. I know everything about you. And when it comes to that point, she immediately changes the subject. She says, wow, I perceive that you're a prophet. Now, 
have you noticed the human tendency that we, when we run across somebody that has an area of expertise, we've always got that one question that we've been holding for that moment when we meet the person that is the expert in that field. Have you ever known that? For instance, you're in a, 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 a social gathering somewhere. You're introduced to somebody, and you find out they're a doctor, and you say, I've been wanting to ask you about this pain in my shoulder. We always have a question for the expert. You get introduced to somebody, and you find out they're an attorney, and you say, by the way, I've been meaning to ask somebody who knows. And you ask some legal question. What about all these, this, this tax that the bureaucrats are missing out on because they don't tax things that are bought online and it crosses the state line? And, and you know, you've got all these things you want to ask some expert that's been bothering you. So here she comes into a prophet, which evidently people didn't run into prophets quite often in those days. But a prophet to her that seems to be so good at what he does, here's the question that she's been carrying all these years. Now that she finally has something, somebody that she thoroughly believes can put an answer, a a final solution to this question, she's going to pose it to him. I think you're a prophet. I believe you're a prophet. You've impressed me. Now tell me this. Who is the best worshipers? People who worship in this mountain or people who worship in Jerusalem? And what she was doing was stating the great divide between the Jews and the Samaritans, that they argued and bickered back and forth about who was right and who was wrong. And she thinks that this man has the ability to give her the ultimate answer to this perplexing question of these two groups, these two cultures. All right, let's settle this right now. I've always wanted to know who is really worshiping, my people or your people? That's the great question, and that's what I'm going to build my sermon around today, is the great question of worship. And not just where do we worship, but just to answer our questions, our uncertainties about worship. And her question is not really in a question form. Did you notice that? She says, basically... Our people worship on the mountain, and your people worship down there. She never gets around to saying, actually, in question form, which is best, who is better. But he answers it as though the, the question is posed to her. And he says, well, the hour will come and is now. The hour is coming and now is that true worshiper, worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And he has to unpack that a little bit as he does. What's it mean to worship in spirit and truth? And that's perhaps something we'll unpack a little bit today, hopefully. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God's a spirit. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. So if we understand what it means to worship God in spirit and in truth, we're going to get the answer that this woman sought. If we understand what it means to worship God in spirit and in truth, we will probably answer a lot of our questions we will probably solve a lot of complications in our life. Now, I could say a lot of, of uh, predictable things, like worship is not something you just do at church. Worship is a lifestyle. You've heard that. You know that. And it's not bad to reinforce that today. But it's not just what we do to come to church. It's what we do with our life that, that really worships God. Worship is everything we're doing here today. You came here to worship God today. Your presence here 
is worshiping him, giving honor and respect to him. We had a moment where we took some music and we, we sang some songs that hopefully the lyrics resonated with some people. And as they did, you begin to feel the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your heart. That was worship. And here we are preaching. And I'm trying to say things that will inspire you and draw you closer to God, to endear you to God. And this concept of he gave his only begotten son for us. And in the process of this, we are worshiping God. This is all about worship. But we still have our own problems and complications with this. I think we have struggled with what it really means to worship, just like this woman did. And I could offer a couple of examples of that. In recent years, as churches have expanded, years ago when a church expanded, it just built, bought a piece of property and built. Or they had property they had already purchased years ago in anticipation of growth and just built a a church. And you realize how expensive it is to build these days? And churches have discovered how expensive land is, how expensive building is, so they become creative. And back whenever the church, uh, some of the churches began to do creative things, like they would buy big warehouses and convert them for church. That didn't settle well with a lot of people. There were some people who were very uncomfortable with that because it doesn't look like a church. It doesn't feel like a church. And I think we're becoming a little bit like this woman who thinks that he has worship all figured out. It has to do with location. If you can just find the right location. It has to do with non-essential details that in her mind, if we can just get it like this, it'll be proper worship. And Jesus swept it all away. So it doesn't have to do with the kind of details that often we associate with worship. You know, have any of you ever heard of any churches meeting in the movie house on Sunday morning before they start the movies for the day? That upset a lot of people. What are people doing in the movie house worshiping God? I'll tell you what they're doing there. They're worshiping God. There's been churches that have rented bars before opening hours because that was the only place they could afford, not because they wanted to be cool and go someplace where they could have a a drink and worship God, which I know some are doing that now. But not these churches. They were just looking for a place, and they just figured it doesn't make any difference where you are. It doesn't make any difference if it's the mountain in Samaria or if it's the temple in Jerusalem. Those who worship God, just worshiping in spirit and the truth, that's the kind of people God's looking for. Now, how many of you remember whenever the church began to get innovative and in this culture where we are very busy people and we're trying to make ends meet and the wife is working and the husband's working, you're working two jobs, you're taking any job you can get, you have to work Sundays. See, we used to have uh, laws where people shut down their businesses on Sunday. Nobody had to work Sunday. Now we've got a lot of people working Sundays and they can't attend Sunday church. So somebody along the way decided, you know what we need to do? We need to open up Saturday night service. And when they first did this, some of the saints gasped. (gasps) you can't do Sunday search on Saturday night. There's something just wrong with this. But what's wrong with it? With people who can't get there on Sunday, what's wrong with it? You're just making an accommodation. You're trying to help people that want to go to church, that need to go to church, and you're sensitive to what they need to be able to stay connected to God, so they started Saturday night. And I know because I heard the complaints. I heard the criticisms about it. But like Jesus is dealing with this woman, he's saying it's not all about the insignificant things you think it's about. Those who worship God, just do it simply. Do it in spirit and in truth. And I don't care where you do it, and I don't care when you do it. Just worship me. 
And that's okay. There's so many things that have become a standard part of our worship. And we struggle with changing those things. My challenge as a pastor to you is to be honest enough with yourself and honest enough with God to question the things which have just become embedded in our, in our, in our mind, in our psyche, in our practice through tradition that we have, uh, we have canonized it, we've, we've deified it. It's, it's, it's become sacred to us when sometimes it's just tradition. And tradition can be changed, and it, it probably will change. I mean, look around us. Tradition in all facets of life have changed. We just don't do things like we used to do. We've got electricity instead of kerosene lamps. There's just a lot of things we do different. Tradition changes. But when you get into the church, people sometimes become so guarded about tradition that they're not honest with themselves. Does the Bible really speak to this issue, or is this just something that you personally have adopted as your uh, pet grievance? Is this something that has become your sacred cow? So there's a time when, uh, as the church transitioned a little bit, that... uh, they abandoned the organ. Some churches still have it. Many churches do not. They abandoned an orchestra. Some churches still have it. Many churches do not. They abandoned the, the choir. They abandoned hymn books. And, and people, sometimes, if they don't understand that these are things that are negotiable, they really are, but people who cannot make that, that leap in understanding, they start, they, they, they start backsliding. They get bitter about church because we don't sing out of hymn books anymore and then they put words, spray words on the wall and we do all these things. We never did that when I was growing up. There's a lot of things we don't do that we did when we were growing up. But is it a matter of really important things? We see these changes and how, how do we process those? Because what is, what is worship really all about? Let me just give you a few things that we practice sometimes very guardedly and very religiously, but the Bible doesn't tell us we have to. The Lord's Supper is very clearly, unquestionably instituted by Christ for perpetual observance in the church. We understand that. All major denominations understand that. As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me, we understand that. But where it starts to break down is the Bible does not say how often, It does not say what day of the week. It does not say morning or evening service. It does not say little wafers or a full loaf that's broken. It does not say community cup or individual servings. It doesn't say how large or how small the portions. But it does say that you just can't bring your own attitudes into this like they did in the Corinthian church. That's what it does say. So out of all of those things I've listed... We probably have some of those things where people bristled a little bit because it has to be like we did it when I grew up. Now, I I did not grow up in a church that used the community cup. I thank God every day. But I did not adopt that as a necessity for worship. Backwash has always been a concern of mine. But it's not biblically mandated. The Bible clearly teaches water baptism. We don't have any question about that. But you know what the Bible does not specify? It does not specify that it has to be 
a pond or can't be a pond. It has to be a lake or can't be a lake. It has to be a river or can't be a river. And somebody says, ah, I got you there. The Bible very clearly said Jesus went to the river. Well, the Bible said Jesus done a lot of things that we don't have to do. He said he got nailed to the cross, and you don't have to do that either. Uh, what is found is, as a record of history is not always precedent. What is found as a matter of historical account is not always doctrine. You can't make precedent out of everything. And particularly with the life of Jesus, that he did a lot of things he does not expect us to do. But he went to a river because that was available to them. But you know what? Saints have been baptized in swimming pools. Do you know anybody that choked on the first time they ever found out somebody was having a baptistry in somebody's backyard in the swimming pool? I had a woman who was dying out in California that she wanted to be baptized, but she was so sickly. She sent word to the church and said, Pastor, they want to know if she gets baptized, can she just be baptized in her bathtub? Have you ever been questioned and had that experience? Well, before, before I could make arrangements to do that, because she died very quick, she passed away, but it was okay with me. I said, never done a bathtub baptism before, but I think we can do this. Remember Philip and the eunuch out in the desert place? And he was struggling to understand who this man is. He was reading in the scripture, and Jesus preached, Je- uh, and, and Philip preached Jesus to him. And when he got done and he understood who this man was talking about in Isaiah, uh, uh, the man says, well, here's some water. Will this do? Now, you've got to understand where they were. Where were they? They were in the desert place. There are not a lot of rivers and streams and ponds and lakes in the desert place. They were in the desert place. So whatever mud puddle they found there, the man said, will this do? And Philip said, it's all right. Anything will do. Anything will do. And you've got to think about this, people. We believe in full immersion. We do. But I guarantee you, if somebody was dying and they wanted to be baptized and all I could do is get a wash rag and wipe their face and and wring it over their head, I promise you, God would honor that because it's their heart. I wouldn't expect to pick up a body that is brittle with with bone cancer and try and lower them in the the tank because God says if you don't do it this way, you're not going to heaven. You've got to work with the situation. What is real worship? It's a heart thing. It's not a mechanical thing. There's a few things that people read in the Bible that they believe to be absolute precedent for the modern church. And it continues to divide churches today because they read the historical account and they assumed that because it was written that way in the Bible that therefore God intended that to be the precedent, the form, the model that we have to follow. And that's not the way that God intended us to read the Bible whatsoever because we get, we get real... Uh, picky about the things that we choose to be set in stone models and the things that we say, well, that that was just cultural. We do it all the time. We do it honestly. People would do it all the time. The Bible says, let the women be silent in church. Aren't you glad that we didn't take that as being a model for what the church has to do today? I mean, we, we, do, we have to rightly discern and understand what God is trying to teach us and what just happened to be a recording of what was. 
true worshipers are not to be mechanical. Now, let's, let's plumb a little deeper, and I'm finally going to get started on my sermon, but don't get nervous because the points are going to go very quickly. I want to plumb a little bit deeper into what Christian worship should be like. First of all, I want to say Christian worship is unique because if you look somebody at somebody who worships nature, uh, if you look at somebody who worships false deities, Christian worship is unique in every aspect compared to the way other people worship other things. We lived in California 60 miles from Mount Shasta. Mount Shasta is the fourth highest mountain in California. Snow-capped most of the year, unless they have an extremely dry winter and extremely hot summer. It's a snow-capped mountain year-round. Mount Shasta is considered to be a holy mountain, a sacred mountain by mountain worshipers. And the town of Mount Shasta, at the base of Mount Shasta, is full of mountain worshipers. And they run around in these thin linen tunics around town, which you don't want to be watching when they stand and the sun is shining just right on this because I'm I'm honest, I'm telling you. This this is embarrassing. These are the mountain worshipers. And they, they flock. Because it's one, of these, it's one of these focal points for the energy of the world. And they go up and they sit and they meditate on the mountain. So if you hike the mountain of Mount Shasta, you will pass people who are up there meditating and doing their religious thing. Had a friend of mine that pastored the Mount Shasta church. And somebody called him up and they said, is this the church that worships the mountain? He said, no, this is the church that worships the God that made the mountain. <laughs> yeah, mountain worshipers. You've got people that worship volcanoes and make sacrifices to it. You've got people that worship nature, and there are certain sacred spots around the United States and around the world that, are, that they worship nature. And Christian worship is unique because we worship in a way that has a particular relationship with the object. Now, that's what I'm going to get into with these points. First of all, our worship. Unique Christian worship, compared to all the worship in the world, starts off, first of all, it's a natural expression of affection. Now, I've been able to communicate with you today. I've been able to engage some of you today. You have responded to things I have said. There have been times when we've had lighter moments, and you laughed and you responded, and sometimes you clapped a little bit. You're emotionally engaged in this, and that's okay. But we should be free to feel emotionally engaged with God as well. It's a natural part of worshiping God. Unlike pagan worshipers, uh, we adore the one we worship instead of pagan worshipers perhaps fearing, dreading the thing that they worship and trying to appease it to keep it from killing them. We have this personal relationship with our God, our object of worship. We're overwhelmed by his love for us. We can scarcely comprehend the sacrifice that Christ made in our behalf. That's why we go to church. That's why people who don't go to church don't understand why we do go to church. Because it's not just a duty. 
This is not something we just say because we have to do this, because we belong to the church, because we're Christian. Why do you give so much money to the church? Why do you go over Sunday? Wouldn't you rather stay at home? If you have a personal relationship with God, if you realize the whole story of mankind and the fall of mankind and the redemption of mankind, if you realize we were lost, we were undone, we were hopeless, we were dying, we were headed for eternity without God until Jesus Christ came and died on the cross and purchased our salvation and life up our love in him then you understand why we go to church because we love him he did so much for us it's just a thrill to go to his house and just to take a few moments of our day and our week and just say thank you God for loving me you didn't have to but you gave it all for me that's worship they worship in heaven I've got scriptures for that I don't know how many Uh, Tobias put up on there, but quickly in the fourth chapter of Revelation, we see uh, the four beasts worshiping God. We see the 24 elders worshiping God. And Ezekiel saw cherubims worshiping God. And Isaiah saw uh, these creatures flying around. And all they did was just cry out, holy, holy, holy. It wasn't their job. It wasn't their duty. It wasn't their obligation. They did that because they were in the presence of the grand God, creator of all things. And when they were in that presence, they couldn't help but just declare, He is holy. He is holy. He is holy. He is holy. Now look, if the creatures in heaven do that, if they are compelled by being in the presence of an almighty God, Don't you think it ought to have some impact on us when we walk into his house? And if we ever discern God's here, shouldn't it elicit some emotional response from us? On earth, in the 19th chapter of Luke, Jesus was traveling along on the road. He came to this fork in the road. And and right there, this significant crowd had been gathering and following him. And he paused right there. And this group that was with him, kind of known as his disciples at that point, uh, not all of them were going to stick with him, but he had a large group of followers. And along with Jesus and his inner circle and his outer circle were the scribes and Pharisees were tagging along with us. were always looking for evidence against him. And he came to this place where there was this spontaneous outburst. As they began to cry out and worship him, the Bible says, because of all the great miracles they had just seen. They were talking about it. They were excited. They were bubbly. They were overflowing. And then all of a sudden, this spontaneous act of worship, audible, emotional worship, broke out. And they began to just praise and glorify God. And the scribes and the Pharisees ran over to Jesus, and they said, Stop these people. Don't let them do this. This is inappropriate. And I'm so glad that this passage of Scripture is in the Bible. Because Jesus said, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. That is the most beautiful, perfect answer to their objection. They said, why don't you rebuke your disciples? They're not acting very sophisticated. This is not appropriate. Well, they were out in the middle of nowhere. What was inappropriate about this? But this was a bunch of people who had their own ideas about what it meant to worship God. And this did not fit their paradigm. We just shouldn't do this. It, it, they never had that kind of, of uh, worship breakout when they were leading and teaching people. So why should they do that under Jesus Christ? And they are worshiping and they are praising and they're being loud and they're being emotional. And they said, rebuke them. Stop them. 
And I'm always intrigued by that answer that if they don't, the stones will. I, you know, I, I, I guess what Jesus is implying is that creation, when it understands the greatness of the presence of God, just has to cry out in praise and honor to him. Therefore, if we as human beings cannot do that, we're lower than rocks. You don't want to be there. Do you have a heart? Do you have a soul? Are you so unmoved by the presence of God and His majesty and the reality of being here that you think doing nothing and remaining stoic and not entering in and don't let the emotions get the best of you is really the proper way to worship God? When did that ever creep into the church? When did we in church, and not just, not just our church, but I'm talking about many churches where you go and you don't want to scratch your nose. You, you'll, you're afraid somebody will think you're getting Pentecostal. Just sit there, rigid, don't move, don't make a noise, don't do anything. Let's just get through this without drawing an attention to ourselves. Where, when did that grip the church? And when Jesus put his stamp of approval on your emotions being a part of worshiping him. Now, I understand what over-emotionalism is. I really do. I grew up in over-emotionalism. I understand. But we can't just throw that all out just because some have abused that. At some point, we have to realize that the whole process of worshiping God involves our emotions. It really does. And if I had spent my life in my relationship with my wife promising that I would never allow my emotions to enter into my communication of my love for her, it would be a miserable relationship for me to just very coldly, very remotely just say, wife, Know that I love you. And go on. Sometimes I have, to, I have to express to my wife with my emotions, I love you so much. You mean everything to me. I have to do that because our marriage can't be based on information. And your relationship with God can't just be based on uh, delivering a message uh, just in, in, in informational exchange. I love you, Lord. But do you love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? And do you give yourself permission to come into his house and tell him that with your emotions? You ever feel so good in God that you just want to dance a little jig? You ever do that? You ever feel so moved by the presence of God that you just weep in His presence? You ever do that? Have you given yourself permission to come to church and realize this is a Pentecostal church? We're we're a little more open about things. To ever vocally just come to church and say out loud, I love you, God. Thank you, Lord. Praise you, Jesus. God, you give yourself permission to do that because it's okay to be emotional with God. God's not nervous. He can put up with a little noise. He really can. But I don't say we have to be noisy. Our worship can be quiet as well. I understand that. I understand that. But back to the marriage analogy. 
once in a while, you're going to get emotional in conveying your love. And that's okay, too, because Jesus approved it. Said, There's a lot of pressure built up in this world. It builds up to the glory of God. It builds up to expressing his greatness. The pressure is building, just like the pressure in the volcanoes is building. It's going to burst through the crust one of these days. And the outlet valve is you. And if you don't let it out, the rocks are going to let it out. You are the one that is supposed to be expressing the greatness of the glory of God. So why don't you do it? And say, bless the Lord, oh my soul. Number two, worship is an expression of complete confidence in God. Unlike pagan worship, that they have no confidence. They can't have any confidence in the false deity they worship. We worship with complete confidence in God. My worship of God is God. You can do all things. Thou hast created all things. A worship of confidence in him. I'm not going to worship some stone god, some wood god, something that can't do anything. I'm not going to worship a statue sitting on the, uh, on, the, on the mantle at home. I'm going to worship the one true living God. Thou hast created all things. A worship of confidence. Whenever God said to Abram, is there anything too big for me? That's the one I worship. And I tell him what I worship. There's nothing that is impossible for you, God. That's my worship of him. Others worship the beauty of nature. They worship the majesty of the mountain. They worship the mysteries of the unknown. Their deity is either oddly deaf and unresponsive to their worship or so mysterious and so evasive as to be unpredictable. Who worships a mountain believes that mountain is really going to watch out for them throughout the day. Who worships some mystical deity that that deity has to guide, is able to even guide their footsteps and prepare their path for them? Who worships any idol that that idol has ever healed them of their diseases or given them peace of mind and tell them your sins are forgiven? Who worships anything like it except my God? I have confidence in him and it drives me to worship him because my God can. Number three, worship is an expression of total admiration. What is not to admire about this God? He's majestic. He's no fool. He's the great creator of the universe. He spoke this world into into existence. He's so far beyond my wisdom, my understanding, my imagination, and the intelligence of humans that the word genius can't even be used because it falls too short of who God is and what he is. Men might be geniuses, but God is God. And that's way above that. When we consider the microscopic structure of all things, we see the atoms, the molecular structures and their precision. We study the DNA code and see millions of lines of code that have been embedded into our personal body. They fashion our genetic makeup. They determine the color of our eyes. They determine little uh, things that you inherit from your parents. All this genetic code is embedded in there. It would take up libraries and libraries and libraries to be able to write that in books, what's in there. You see the precision of the movement of our solar system and the delicate balance of our world and the precise position of the tilt of the earth on its axis and the precise location of the earth in its orbital path around the sun and the precise conditions which make our planet inhabitable. We see these things and we're in awe of the one who designed it 
It's far too complex to be accidental. It's so complex as to be infinitely beyond anything mankind could ever dream of, much less ever to accomplish. So I vote with the psalmist who says, Oh Lord, our Lord, your majestic name fills the earth. Your glory is higher than the heavens. You've taught the children and infants to tell of your strength and silencing your enemies of all who oppose you. And when I look at the night sky, when I see the works of your fingers and the moon and the stars you set in place, who is man that thou art mindful of him? Who is humans that you should care for them? We worship him because he's awesome. Number four, it's a unique worship because it's an expression of humble invocation. Our worship is a unique way that we invite God to our, into our presence. He inhabits the praises of his people. So as the praises go up, the glory comes down. Shouldn't that be a motivator for us to come here? Not to be distracted here in church. Not to have our mind on critical things, but to come in here and lay down every difference. And every one of us invite God. The Bible says we're two or three that agree as touching anything. Evie Hill, his version of that is God says, I want to go down and see that. Because we don't get two or three to agree on anything very often. But when you get a whole congregation that enters in here, that you've prepared yourself for his presence. This is the day the Lord has made. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go to the house of the Lord. You prepared yourself for entering in. You came in here fully expecting to have a God encounter. Did you come today expecting to have a God encounter? And the service is not over. But what we're doing right now, by our thoughts, by our actions, we're still inviting God to come. We haven't sent him home and said, we got this now, God. We're going to ride this out to the end, sing a few songs, go home. God, come. Mess us up. Tear up the routine. Interject any time you're ready. Say anything you want to say. Do anything you want to do. God, you are welcome in this place. That's our worship is... Inviting him. Shouldn't that be the biggest thing about going to church? Shouldn't we anticipate meeting God at his house? Wouldn't it be a gross waste of everyone's time if we just went to church, went through a few predictable motions, and then went home? Isn't it about encountering God and shouldn't we be of the mind to welcome God in our midst when we come to church? And shouldn't we be cautious of anything that would make God unwelcome to be here today? I don't care if it's in here or out there in the foyer or in the gymnasium. This is God's house. Don't you do or say anything that makes God say, I think I'll visit another church today. I don't like the atmosphere here. No, we dedicate this place to God. Every square inch of it. There's not a dark corner where somebody should be able to come in here with a nasty attitude because this is God's house. And don't you do that. We want God to be here today. When we worship when we truly worship, we want God to show up. So I'm thinking, like the old chorus, come Holy Spirit, we need you.
Like the song we just sang, Come Thou Fount. Come Thou King. Come Thou Precious Prince of Peace. Come Thou Fount of our blessing. Lord, come today. Bow your head.